Good morning. So uh, it's good to be here. If you are new, let me introduce myself. My name is Tony, and I'm pastor here at LAFC. And uh, we're always going to use, if you ever come back, you're going to find the same thing happening, is that we have a primary textbook that is our authority by which we use to say, this is how we discover how to live in the way that God intended for us. And so this is our instruction book. And so we're going to go to the Word of God very quickly here this morning in the sense of, of understanding the culture of something to happen. So if you have a Bible, uh, open to Romans chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, our ushers are walking up the aisle right now. They'll be glad to provide you one. And uh, you can keep this as a gift from us if you'd like to keep, keep it uh, going forward. So please do so. And in these Bibles, we'll be on page uh, 828 in Daniel and page 1061 in Romans 9. Having said that, just want to give context again for what we're doing over the next several months. Uh, we're teaching out of the book of Daniel, but we're studying the life of Daniel. Uh, and the reason for that is that most people today, when, when considering the culture of America, would say that it, they're not pleased with it. Uh, very few people would say it's going in a good direction. And, uh, and as a result, many people are pessimist, pessimistic or, or they're cynical about the future of America. And for those who want to live by faith in, in, in God or under the name Jesus Christ, they're particularly discouraged by the trend of culture because uh, culture is not particularly friendly to those who would espouse of worship of God or commitment to the name Jesus Christ. And so that name doesn't have the same uh, historical value that maybe it has in the past, uh, but yet we still find ourselves wanting and desiring to live for Jesus Christ, but in a culture that does not appreciate it, does not want to hear from it. The question then becomes, what attitude do you take if you do not like where the culture's at, if you do not like how things are going, what's your attitude? What's going to be your daily rituals as living this out in this culture? Are you going to take that as a victim, as one who is discouraged, one that is defeated, one who is a minority, or do you take it as an opportunity? And so last week, we, were, we looked at the entrance of Daniel into a land that was not his own. Now, Daniel was a prince of Judah. Now, to explain just for a moment, Israel at the time of this had been split into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel, and the southern kingdom that was the, under the name Judah. And so two of, the 12, two of the 12 tribes were with Judah, 10 were with the northern kingdom. And so you have this context where now the northern kingdom has been conquered. They no longer are in existence, and it's just Judah that remains. And Judah's king, Hezekiah, who was a descendant of King David, Hezekiah was a good king in the sense that he had honored God. He taught things the way they were taught. He ruled in the way he was supposed to rule. But then at the end of his kingship, a moment happened where he got sick, and almost died, and God said, You're, you need to prepare for death. And he begged God for extended life. He received that grant. And, uh, and after that moment, uh, some emissaries, some uh, messengers from Babylon showed up. 
And they themselves were also of royalty from Babylon. And they were coming to check in on the king of Judah to see if he is feeling better. And so receiving that with great joy and pride that one of the most powerful kingdoms on the earth, they've sent messengers to see how I'm doing. He decided to gloat a little bit and show off his kingdom. So he took them to his palace, showed them everything he owned. There was nothing he withheld from their eyes. He took them to the temple, did the same thing, and showed them all the treasures of the temple, and then showed off the country, and they realized, the Babylonians realized that this place had a lot of resources. They go back to Babylon, then the prophet Isaiah shows up and asks King Hezekiah, what have you done and what have you showed them? God was not happy that Hezekiah took pleasure in showing off the kingdom in a prideful manner to a very pagan kingdom. As a result, God told Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah that your kingdom will be taken and carried off to Babylon. Everything you've showed off will eventually be in Babylon. Not only that, your children's children will be taken off uh, off to Babylon as well, and they're going to become servants in the palace of the king of Babylon. But not only servants, they're going to be eunuchs serving that king. So that was what I would say would be an awful prophecy to receive to find out my grandchildren are going to be forced into slavery and everything I own is going to be stolen and taken off. And not only that, my grandchildren are going to cease to be able to have children. They're going to be castrated and made, humiliated and made to serve this pagan king. You would think Hezekiah would have been so downcast and, 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 and distraught about the fact that this was going to happen to his kingdom and his offspring. But instead he said, this is good because it won't happen in my lifetime. A hundred years later, five generations later, you have Daniel. Daniel's one of the princes of Egypt, so he would be of the offspring of Hezekiah, many grandsons later. And he now has, is part of the generation that's been taken into Babylon. While there, he is now being made into this servant that is going to serve the king. So one of the first things they did was identify him as being good-looking, capable of doing much, being smart and intelligent. He's one of the princes. We want him serving the king of Babylon. So castrate him and then train him. What an entrance into a new place. Around Daniel, he sees nothing but that which offends him. He also knows from the past that his great-great-great-great-grandfather made some mistakes that now he's paying for. So what does Daniel do? Does he play the victim card and complain? Does he blame his grandfather? Does he complain to God, say, why my generation? Why couldn't have it been later? Or why couldn't have it been Hezekiah's generation that suffered for this? Why us? You see, the victim card would have gotten Daniel nowhere. And we probably wouldn't even know him if he had chose to be the victim. But instead, he resolved he resolved to go forward. He resolved that he was going to fear God more than man, even though this was a part of God's judgment on his country that he's now suffering for. And he also chose 
to have an attitude and have actions that would, yes, he feared God more than man, but somehow in his raising up and fearing God over the king, he still had an attitude and action that was winsome and caused influence that had even moved the heart of the king. Now the question I have for you today is if you were in Daniel's shoes, would you have said, with all that's going on around you, you've been sent to a pagan kingdom, you've been castrated, you now no longer can have children, you're being forced to serve something that you cannot stand, you despise it, would you be able to say, God is in control? Could you say that God is in control? When somebody begins to complain to you about the condition of America and all the divisiveness, the anger, the fighting, or the things of morality that are being questioned and that now there is no moral code, it's really up to each person to decide that and you're offended by all these things. When somebody's complaining by those things and you agree with them, can you say in that moment with confidence and with a convicting and convincing attitude, could you say, God is in control. You see, you might be able to believe it in your head, but in your heart, it's hard to say it with even convincing yourself because so much around us is evil. But consider different generations since this time. You know, in the early church, when it was just growing in the Roman Empire, a new Caesar took control. His name was Nero. Nero was so wicked. He was so full of himself and he despised Christians. He brags in his writings. You can find this online. He brags in his writings that he lit up Rome for several evenings by burning the bodies of Christians. He would pitch them with tar around their bodies and then tie them to a stake and then light them up to light the city streets of Rome. Do you think the church in Rome would say when they've seen their children burned alive, they've seen their spouses burned alive, would you say that they could say with confidence and with a convincing attitude and words, God is in control? How about if you were a Christian in a church in middle of Europe in 1938 and 39 when Hitler was taking over all of Europe and countries knew that he was coming for their country next. People were going to their houses of worship and saying, God, please don't let this evil man take over us. Only to discover that he was there on their doorstep with hardly any fight. Do you think those churches that suffered under Hitler's rule and watched the atrocities and suffered all the battles over their lands because of the evil of this man. Do you think they would say, God is in control? What about the church of middle Africa in this particular country of Zimbabwe? The church was thriving in Zimbabwe. But then Mugabe took over. And Mugabe ruled like a crazy dictator. He would kill anybody that would come against him. Farmers were kicked off their lands, and often their children were killed if they resisted at all. Many of those people had worshipped on Sunday, but now they go back to that church bearing their children 
because they had been killed by those taking their land. Would you think that they could say with confidence and with a convincing spirit that God is in control? How about the church in some of the parts of Middle East that had existed in strength, but then different places like and groups like Al-Qaeda come in and say, we see God differently. How about those that maybe were in the towers on 9-11 that had worshipped on the previous Sunday and now a loved one is no longer alive? Could they have gone in the next day to that church and said, God, you're in control? How about those in the northern Middle East where ISIS took over? Where they took pleasure in killing Christians or people of other faiths, beheading them before their families. Could those families say with a convicting spirit and a convincing attitude, God is in control? How about in Africa again, on that continent, in some of the rural places where a group known as Boko Hiram took children from a school bunch of girls, more than a couple hundred, and took them to become their brides at ages 10, 11, and 12. Those children, those girls had been in church the previous Sunday, many of them. Now those parents are grieving because they do not know where their daughters are, and they know they're being violated. Do you think they could say in worship the next Sunday, our God is in control? seems kind of petty when you think about our complaints. The fact that people might snicker when, they talk, when you talk about your faith or that maybe somebody might go cold a little bit in their spirit towards you if you actually said you love Jesus. We start thinking, I suffered in that moment. And then you might suffer a little bit. Maybe you got passed over for a, a promotion or something doesn't go the way you want it or, or something doesn't go right in your family. And so quickly we're willing to say, where's God? Or we say a timid statement of God is in control, but we don't even believe it. You see, Daniel had every right by human standards, to complain about his context and to feel like God is not in control. Just consider for a moment, we're going to take a little bit of a dive about why his situation was so extreme. The city of Babylon, let's take that for example. In Revelation chapter 18 verse 2, the angels refer to Babylon the great, this great city that was so evil. In fact, throughout Scripture, from Old Testament to New Testament, the term Babylon became a metaphor for most evil city. In fact, they would project the name Babylon on other cities that were as evil as Babylon. Some have even gone on to say that the modern-day Babylon is the United States of America. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying that you need to understand that in Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, the angels simply used the term Babylon as a metaphor for the worst of the worst, the city that they could think of that was most vile and evil. 
we do something similar with the term from the city Sodom. Today we have laws in our land that prevent sodomy of, of people that are of, under the age. And we, we see it as a disgusting approach towards sexuality. And yet it's, it's that term, sodomy, that comes from the city of Sodom. That's a biblical city that is talked about in southern Israel. It was so sensual, it was so sexualized, and it was so disgusting that we use the name of Sodom, that city, to define something that is disgusting today. But Babylon is that example and metaphor of an evil city. Vile, against God, despises God, and God despises it. That's the city that here Daniel has to live in. And he's now forced to adapt as his own. Beyond that, not only did he have to go to such a city, but then he has to train for three years. We looked at this last week. For three years, they're going to teach him how to become a Babylonian. Now, how offensive is this? Because the culture of Babylon was primarily guided by satanic rituals as their form of religion. Astrology, occultism, enchanters, dark practices by magicians and the like. And yet that's the very thing that they were going to train Daniel to do. You see, the person that was in charge of the training of Daniel was Ashpenaz. And it says that he was also a eunuch, but he was the chief of the magicians. He was the one responsible for being able to train Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Belteshazzar, known as Daniel. They were going to be the ones he was going to train. And so they were going to be trained to do all the dark practices that makes Babylon so evil. So not only is Daniel going to a most evil city, now he's being trained to do that which is evil that makes that city so vile. How would you like that? Every day being educated in darkness. On top of that, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of this place, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most cruel and narcissistic rulers in history. History is not too kind towards Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, secular records will say he was a very brutal and self-narcissistic uh, type of leader of all time. He is not respected by history. He is seen as murderous, quick-tempered, and extremely vain. That's the king that Daniel gets the opportunity to serve. So he's in one of the most evil cities of all time to the point where even the angels thousands of years later refer to any evil city as Babylon. Then they also are being forced to learn what makes it so evil and to practice it and delete it and to do so under the most narcissistic, cruel rulers of history. That was Daniel's context. Not to mention that it was directly spiritual hostile to Daniel when they gave him his name. That name Belteshazzar was the Babylonian term that means Bel's prince. Bel was the nickname of their god Marduk. 
Marduk was the god that created a lot of this vile practice of occultism. So now Daniel no longer is known by a Jewish name that is honoring to God. He is now given a name that gives honor to this pagan god. He is going to be Bel's prince, not Judah's prince any longer. So every time he hears his name, he's hearing his name being referred to the prince of Marduk, the prince of Bel. How offensive this must have been. But that's Daniel's context. Now, if you're in Daniel's shoes, you're in the most evil country of all time. You are serving in a culture where they're making you be a part of it and leading it. You're indoctrinated in it. You're immersed in it. And you're serving under that kind of king. And you're given a name that is absolutely repulsive to you. Do you think that Daniel could say, oh, but God is in control? Don't you think in light of his context, probably more extreme than anything you and I have ever faced, deserves a look from us to say, how is it that Daniel changed not only one kingdom, but three kingdoms just by his presence and the way he lived? So let's lean in now. How is it that he's able to somehow see through the cutting of all the evil around him make sense of it, and be able to acknowledge that God, fear of God is greater and should be greater in his heart and mind than fear of man. So you have to be able to put into context then, how is it that evil success survives? What, how can you make sense of it in light of God's work? The Apostle Paul, in the early church, several thousand years later after this moment, writes about something similar in Romans chapter 9. So let's go there to begin. In Romans chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he has, wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. But one of you will still say to me, then why is it that God still blames us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath, and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to make the rich, uh, as to the objects of his mercy, whom he then prepared in advance of his glory? Even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Let me stop there. 
So in this context, what, you, what you, we didn't read was that it has already been said by Paul that God loved Esau, I mean loved Jacob, but rejected and hated Esau. Now, historically speaking, those were two brothers that were sons of Isaac. And Isaac would typically bless the older son to become the one through who the, the continued inheritance would go. But in this case, it became Jacob, the younger brother. God made sure that the younger brother was going to be the one through whom the promises to their grandfather, Abraham, would be kept. So there's a lot of struggle in understanding how is it that God chose this to happen, that the older brother ends up serving the younger then Paul takes on this subject. In verse 17, he appeals to the memory of the Israelite to Pharaoh. Let's go back to Pharaoh for a moment in our minds. If you know anything about the history of Israel, Israel served, was in uh, Egypt for a long season of time. Initially, they were there under an invitation to be there from Pharaoh. And so they were there to survive a great famine. Eventually, this nation, they grew into quite the nation under the umbrella of Egypt. And they were doing quite well to the point when Pharaoh became threatened by him. Now, this is a different Pharaoh later down the line, a couple hundred years. So then this Pharaoh gets threatened by him. And he begins to treat them harshly and begins to enslave them. Pharaoh was cruel. This particular one that's being referenced was so cruel that Israelites began to cry out, God help us. You don't see any crying out to God when things were good. But when things were difficult under the oppression of Pharaoh, they began to cry out. And some began to cry out, let us go back to the promised land. What ended up happening was God heard their cries. God sent Moses to help them. But what we saw initially is that when Moses came to help, they weren't willing to trust God yet because he was strange to them. So through Pharaoh's hatred of the Israelites and Pharaoh's pride, God shows off his power. Multiple times, Pharaoh rejects the message from God that Moses brought. And therefore, multiple times, God showed off his power. Ten different plagues come in direct response to Pharaoh's pride and his cruelty. By the end of those ten plagues, Israel was now believing that God indeed is more powerful. But they still had heart issues because they were led out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They see the army of Egypt destroyed. And what do they say? Well, there's no food here. There's nothing to drink. We should go back to Egypt. Others were like, well, we can't go back now. So what did they do? They built a calf, a golden calf, out of their own jewelry and started worshiping it. So even though God had showed off his power before Pharaoh and through Pharaoh, they still did not trust in the power of their God. They were still needing to be humbled so that they would realize that God is God and he is worthy of their trust. He's building a case that he is worthy of that trust and Moses is his messenger. Nebuchadnezzar, going back to the Daniel story. Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked and vile king. But keep in mind, 
God used him to fulfill a prophecy given to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, you have messed up. You have not honored me. And now I'm going to judge you and the nation that has not honored me through a king that is yet to come. That king is Nebuchadnezzar. He too, like Pharaoh, was vile. He was hard-hearted. He was also full of himself. And through his wickedness, God is teaching Israel about his own goodness. You see, God showing that he's more powerful than any king that can be. But in this moment, it seems and appears that Nebuchadnezzar is more powerful than God. But you will see over the 70 years that they're in Babylon that God will continue to prove himself being stronger than any earthly king. And Nebuchadnezzar was merely being played like a fiddle by God. He was merely being played like a fiddle by God. God was in control. Nebuchadnezzar was just teaching the people of God a lesson. So going back to this Romans passage, it says that God has the power to harden a man's heart or a woman's heart, and he has the power to soften a man's heart and a woman's heart. But here's the sad reality, and I want this to stick in your mind for a moment. Because when you start seeing evil prevail around you and you start thinking, where's God? Here's this true reality that's riddled throughout Scripture. Scripture is brutally honest. And that is this. It often takes the action of one man's hardened heart to soften another man's heart. Ponder that for a moment. It often takes the actions of a hardened man's heart. In other words, a man's heart who is evil and vile. It often takes the actions of such a man for another man to realize he needs to humble himself. You'll see that God utilizes some of these most wicked people in the Old Testament to teach us how good his own character is. Look at what it says in this Romans 9 passage in verse 22. What if God... Although choosing to show his wrath, and in this case through Pharaoh and through Nebuchadnezzar, to show his wrath, then to make his power known. So God's power was clearly on display through Pharaoh. You can see it because we can read the entirety of the story. But for Daniel, he does not yet know the end of his story. All he knows is he's serving a vile and wicked king. But God says, I will make my power known and I will also show the riches of my glory. Verse 23. I do this so that you can see the riches of my glory as objects of mercy. In other words, by seeing how wicked and powerful Nebuchadnezzar is, and then discovering that God is more powerful but greater in character than Nebuchadnezzar, then you understand how great God is. Because you compare it and you realize the heart of a wicked king accomplishes nothing. But the heart of a righteous and pure and holy God is worth giving my life for. And we discover this in contrast, in juxtaposition of God and Pharaoh, God and Nebuchadnezzar. And yet God says, I use them both so that you can discover who I am in character and in power. So this is true. Verse 23 is basically saying, God's wrath is also a great tool in revealing his glory and his mercy. His glory and his mercy. 
So now, let's put Romans 9 to the test back in Daniel's life. So you have the story of Pharaoh being appealed to in Romans 9. Now let's compare it to the actual story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. So in Daniel chapter 2, we're going to go there. And we're going to start reading in verse 10. So what's going on here is that the king has just had a vision that alarmed him and he wants an interpretation. So he goes and he says, I'm certain uh, the king answered when it says, I have asked for this interpretation. I'm not going to tell you what the dream is, but I want you to tell me what the dream is. Then I'll know that you are able to interpret it. So then what is said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. But then the king answered, I'm certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you, death. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered, the, what, the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. The king was angry, it says, and he put the death penalty out on all of them. So he sends out his soldiers to go out and kill all the wisdom and uh, people and the magicians and the enchanters, which would then include Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Daniel finds out, he, he is alarmed and he goes to the king and says, why have you issued such a harsh decree? You'll see that in verse 15. But then Daniel asks for time and the king grants it. And so then Daniel goes back to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he urges them to plead to God for mercy concerning this mystery. And then God gives the answer to the dream. He gives the dream and he gives its interpretation. And so they take it back to the king and the king is mesmerized by the fact that they were able to tell him the dream and also give the interpretation. But look at the response of the king. Verse 45a, at the end of uh, verse 45, and you'll see this. It says, the great God, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretations is trustworthy. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel, paid him honor, and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Then the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. Whoa. So this most evil, intensely cruel king has just said, after hearing the, the dream being recounted to him, which is a miracle, and then having the interpretation, he is amazed, and he, he falls and humbles himself before Daniel, and then makes that declaration that your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Now, Nebuchadnezzar began to worship God exclusively. No, he did not. Because you'll find in, in Daniel chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, another situation. This time, he's built this huge statue of gold. And he tells everybody, I want you to worship this golden statue. 
And as a result, you're going to be worshiping me as the creator of it. And at the blowing of a horn, you're supposed to bow down and worship. When the horn blew, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remained standing. This enraged Nebuchadnezzar. And, and he said, throw them in the fiery furnace. And he had it heated up even more uh, hotter than before. So much so that the guards that, that threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into that fire died at the mere heat of it all. But while those three men were in there, the king could see in and he saw four figures. He knew somebody had gone in to help them. And he says, did, did we throw a fourth? Was there somebody else? Now many theological scholars will say this is a theophany. It's, it's, a, it's Jesus Christ or God himself coming and walking in. Or minimally, it's a messenger of God in that place. But all we know is that God spared them and they came out. They didn't smell a smoke and their hair was not fringed at all by the heat and the fire. As a result of this moment, look what is said by Nebuchadnezzar with his own mouth in verse 26. It says, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps the prefects, the governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor a hair of their heads had been singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who was sent his angel, rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses turned into rubble, for no other god can save in this way. So now you've had Nebuchadnezzar say, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, in the previous situation with Daniel. And now he said, servants of the most high God. Your God is the highest, and no God can save the way your God saves. Did Nebuchadnezzar give himself over in worship of God alone? No. He continues to be evil. And you think, why is he continuing to find, uh, to succeed? Why? He's already been able to see that God is truly God, but he's not worshiping him yet. But yet there are moments of clarity where he sees it and declares God as who he is. To say that he is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and to say servants of the most high God and no God can save that way, you would think he would know God by this point. Peter, in the New Testament, after Jesus' life, he, Peter makes this statement, live your lives so well among the pagans that they see your good works and begin to glorify your God in heaven. You see, it is known throughout the biblical text that when we live our lives so well, even pagans will begin to acknowledge that your God is the real God. They may not follow after your God, but they begin to realize your God is the real God. And Nebuchadnezzar is now stated, your God is the God of God. Your God is the Lord of kings. Your God is the, is the one that's the most high God, and no one can save like your God. 
But you'll discover in Daniel chapter 4 that Daniel comes with a warning to Nebuchadnezzar and says, your pride has been seen by God and he's going to judge you. And if you do not repent and you do not humble yourself, you're going to be made into a wild animal in your behavior and in your actions. And as a result, you are going to be humiliated before mankind. So repent and humble yourself before God. Daniel heard him, says, that's nice, Daniel but I, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then you see in verse 30 of chapter 4, he says, and Nebuchadnezzar speaking, is not this great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? This is said after the warning from Daniel. And immediately he goes insane. And he begins to behave like a wild animal. In fact, they kick him out of the city of Babylon. They put him in a remote field. And he begins to behave like an animal. This goes on for some time. And then a moment of clarity happens. Verse 34, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards the heaven. And my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth regard, are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases. And his powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the, my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I, restored to my, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. But now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now I think he got it. But it was a journey, and it was an evil journey for him. But yet God kept using his evil, as in Nebuchadnezzar's evil, to show off his greater power and to show off his greater character. It was no longer a mystery to the people of Babylon who God is and who's the powerful God. It was also not a mystery as to his character either. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar and his pride and his cruelty showed off the mercy and the character of God. So what can we learn from this point in Daniel's story? If you're in the midst of what seems to be so evil, a situation around you and you feel surrounded by it, just know this. Evil's victories are always short-lived. It will implode on itself because it's not rooted in good wisdom or character. And plus, it's never as powerful as God. Which leads to my point number two, which is God's plan will never be hindered. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was stronger than God. Pharaoh thought he was stronger than God. They both got played like a fiddle in the powerful hands of God. So when we look at this situation, when you can see that evil's victories are short-lived, God's plans will never be hindered. You can also see that and it's true from Scripture. You have a choice. You and I have a choice. We can either worship God now and bend the knee and surrender to Him and discover the beauty of what He intends for this life. Or you can die and come before Him in His judgment seat and worship Him when it's too late. Because there will be a point in everybody's time they'll bend the knee. 
But the importance is that you bend the knee now. Not when you discover face to face that he is who he said he was. Your life depends on it. And so do others. Let's pray. So God, you are truly powerful. Your character is amazing. And your, yes, you preside over anybody who thinks you're more powerful than you. Your ways will always come to fruition. Your intent is never altered. You are truly sovereign. So God, if there are those here in this room that have never declared you as Lord of their life, and they've just lived for themselves, reveal your character and your desire to love on them and to show mercy to them. Reveal that now, even as we sing this song. But God, for the believer here in this room that has been falling after God, but maybe has become pessimistic or cynical or become victimized and decided that they are just losing the battle and they have no strength to lift their head, God, renew their strength and see that you're still in control. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.